Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest this morning is Hugo Schechter of the Player Care Group. Morning, Hugo. How are you, mate? I'm really good. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's been a busy morning, but I'm sure it's going to be an insightful one as well. Um, so, Hugo, just before we get started, maybe just share with the listeners and the guests um, that have been on the show before around, you know, a brief insight on who you are, what you do, and we can maybe tail it off from there. Yeah, definitely. So, um, currently, I'm, I'm founder and managing director of the Player Care Group, um, having been head of Player Care at West Ham United uh, for two and a half years, and before that, player liaison officer three and a half years at Southampton um, and before that in, in America um, as team operations manager. So really um, a varied background, um, but kind of focused down the player care route. I was a coach in uni uh, and I did uni out in America and coached out there, both men's and women's uh, football. So um, kind of a, 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 there's not really traditional route to player care because I think it's one of those industries within football that's quite a low barrier to entry in terms of specific qualifications or degrees or whatever so there's such a varied group of people working in player care in, in football um, and by player care I mean pretty much anything that's not football or medical around the players and, and their families so player relocations it could be commercial activations team communication um, travel with the team you know there's, there's so many different things that different clubs do it very differently but um, you know there's, there's so much going on and being that sort of 24-7 on call um, in case of emergencies, not just in case they need anything, but uh, yeah, be, being there for the players and their families and trying to give them, remove all distractions so they can perform on the pitch as best they can. Amazing. Very brief insight. So just, you, just uh, you know, you mentioned there, obviously you started off as a coach. Yeah. Uh, you've moved into this, uh, this element of the industry. Um, what was it that caught your eye about this aspect of things? And, you know, player care is something that we're hearing more and more of, especially now with the way modern day environments are set up especially you know not just in football but in, across different sports so maybe just share a little bit of insight around I mean you you did talk about it briefly there and that is anything that's not really medical or I guess technical related if you like yeah. um yeah. but maybe just talk about you know to, to how, how far that really extends itself yeah definitely so I mean, when I was younger, I always thought I was always really into football, like watched it all the time. And then kind of I thought my my way into football would be through coaching. I did my uh, level one in the UK and then I did my E and D license in the States. And I don't know, in, in America, I was lucky, I think because you've got a British accent, you're immediately given, a, you know, a kudos in terms of knowing about football. So I had some nice jobs at uni um, and coached under 16 girls and under 23 men's, which was two vastly different experiences and I think for me really it kind of shocked me how different it was um but but both hugely enjoyable um but I realized that having never really been a player at any level like even at youth football I was never really any good good enough to get picked probably my ceiling in terms of how good a coach I could be was was limited but what I also did while I was coaching was did all the sort of organization and you know that all the, all the team stuff so I was 
I was president of the team, so I'd organize all the, the, the fundraising and all the, the travel and all the organization and, uh, as well as coaching at the same time. And that was actually where I saw us getting a lot of the advantage against other teams in the area because we were so much better organized than they were. And in terms of, you know, I was, I, it was university men's in America, which is great, but it wasn't the varsity team. It was like the student run team. So when I started, we were outside the top thousand nationally. By the time I left, we were 24th in the nation. And like, so to co-op 900 and whatever, 70 places, it wasn't necessarily because we had a super talented players, but I mean, we did, we had a good squad, but everyone knew what they were supposed to be doing. We would have meals before the games. We would arrive on time. We'd have the right number of players. And, and for anyone who's got involved in sort of rec recreational football, that can be half the battle is to get, you know, your five-a-side team of four players show up, you're not playing. So, uh, you, you know, and, and so that by having that, by having a good squad traveling and everyone in the right place at the right time, and even the uniforms all being the same, you know, getting all the kit, kit you know, properly done, that was something that actually we, we won the first battle before we got on the pitch because our guys felt really well prepared. But also, you know, we were going up against teams who were kind of just pulling guys together. And so you would see them kind of as we walked onto the field, we would be, they would be like, oh, wow, you know, like, these guys are going to be good. And we always played with maximum intensity in the first five minutes to really kind of knock them back. And we were very, very successful through that. And, and I think we played the same formation every single game. We played 4-4-2. We played the same players as much as we could, not because I was unable to be tactically astute, but that wasn't my strength. My strength was that everyone knew what they were doing at the right time and had minimal distractions. And we just knew our jobs and we knew that we could pretty much beat almost anyone that we came up against by sticking to our game plan. And so that was kind of when I realized in football that this kind of stuff can take, make a real impact. And if anything, it can not having it done properly can undermine all the, the benefits. And so that's what I'm talking to Premier League, also not, not just Premier League clubs around the world with my consulting now is saying, you guys focus so much on the three hours a day of professional players at the training grounds. You've got, three sports scientists, five video analysts, you've got stats, you've got nutrition, all this stuff. If a player doesn't have things off the pitch sorted, you're undermining those marginal gains you're paying a lot of money to get. So if you've got all those people, but then the player's been stuck in a hotel for two months since arriving, he's sharing a, a small bedroom with his wife and two kids, he's not sleeping very well, it doesn't matter you know, that he's having whole grain pasta instead of white pasta at dinner, because he's so lost on, on, on you know, he's losing such a big chunk on, on the, the personal side that the marginal gains are lost on that other side. So that's kind of where I think that start as a coach, but really as an organizer came into the football world. And that's kind of what I'm trying to preach to clubs now. And it's so underdeveloped in, in even in the Premier League, which is seen as the, the best league in terms of football player care. But, you know, even they are not, the clubs there are not giving it the resources they need. And you're seeing these problems again and again, where players aren't settling in the area, players are not playing well, you know, issues at home affecting their performances. And when you put that into financial terms, if you're playing someone 70 grand a week and they're taking 10 days to get into a house, that's a hundred grand of their salary that you are not wasting, but you're not getting the maximum out of them. So, so every second counts in this kind of stuff. So for me, it's really the next big, change within football you know we've had data analysis in the last few years has really sort of come into the fore video analysis before that 
you know, sports science, sports medicine before that. So I think this is player care is really going to be where the industry goes in the next sort of five, 10 years, hopefully. No, I think I, feel, I definitely agree with you. There's a lot of benefits that can come from it, but, you know, within that, there's also so many differences in terms of what is required from it. You know, you talked there very briefly about all the different clubs doing it in different ways, mm-hmm. um, but also as well as having your own different ways of doing it, you've also got to understand that every person is individually different. Yeah. So I guess maybe just share some insight. You talked, you said that you spent some time with West Ham uh, doing the player care stuff. What does that look like as a department? Is it just a one-man job? Is it one-man band for you know to, to support everyone? Do you have a team of player care uh, liaisons, if you like? Yeah, yeah. So at Southampton, I was by myself, um, and that was fine. Um, I was the first one that they ever appointed, and it was a new role, and it, and it grew, and um, you know we grew it in three and a half years to something you know really good. Um, and then I moved to West Ham to become head of department and they wanted me to head up a new department at West Ham. So I did that and, and hired two excellent people who had vastly different skills to myself. And I think that was really important in, in any team to build, sense your own weaknesses and fill those weaknesses by excellent people that you trust. And, and so, you know, the team was myself who was kind of experienced in football. My other two guys, they didn't come from football and I was quite keen not to recruit someone who'd been at another club and gone, well, we do it this way, we do it that way. Like, to be honest, I'm not interested in the way that other clubs do it. I'm interested in the way that I think is right. And, and I think I do it differently. And so by hiring two keen people who um, were excited to learn, but also had really good life experiences was really good. So we had um, a lady who joined us from women's rugby. Um, she'd also worked in HR in a large corporation. And she was excellent at policies, procedures, organization, um, you know, she really drove the department in terms of, of sort of the, especially the administrative side, she was really, really excellent, um, but also a really warm person as well. And then we had uh, another lad who was straight out of uni, languages graduate, but full of energy, you know, could speak, you know, the languages that, that, that the, other, us, the other two couldn't. And was you know running around making beds and, and picking up cars and all that kind of stuff and so that by between the three of us we had a really good team where we had pretty much i would say all the all the main strengths covered and that way i think is an appropriate level of staffing for a premier league club but a lot of people kind of look at player care as this kind of concierge service this kind of like you know wiping the backsides of players you know and, and i think for me that's it's it's kind of a lazy stereotype in terms of, of what we do because you know at the end of the day these guys are high performing athletes who the clubs pay a lot of money for and just to say well they should sort themselves out well maybe or maybe not but also put yourself in their shoes if you were to move to Senegal age 19 would you know how to get a phone or when the bins are out or any of that so um you know it's it's that kind of stuff. And, and you're not also having to go under the pressure of playing in front of 60, 70,000 people every week. So it's it's really, I think, a, a tired stereotype of, of that, you know, it, it's it's just wiping, wiping backsides. I, th- I think you make some great points. There. I think, you know, it often does go overlooked, the fact that because maybe, we're, especially working senior players, they're making such large amounts of money. Yeah, people people forget they're actually human beings <laughs> they are still human beings they still have the same problems that every other person might have whether that be settling into a new environment whether that be uh, you know missing their family because they've had to move to a new country or they're finding challenges because of having to learn the language yeah i mean you know if we take a very brief example i'm pretty sure you know carlos tevers was here for the best part of eight years but i don't even know if he knows fluent english yet exactly <laughs> but I, it, but, 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 
and that's ridiculous, you know. And but that's a failure of the club, really. Because... But you know, definitely, and I feel like and him as well, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. You know, I've got one of my good mates who's, who's who's a basketball player, and he's he's been around the world, and you know, everywhere he went, they would have stuff set up, you know, similar to what you're talking about. You know, having someone to help him settle in, having someone, um, you, you know, set up maybe language classes and things like that for him, and it. I think it does go, like I said, overlooked because they are athletes who make a large sums of money that, you know, they don't need the same support or they shouldn't get some sort of support that maybe other people might do. Yeah. So I guess, now you talk there a lot about that and presume, I'm presuming that a lot of that is with first team players. Yeah. To, you know, do you have any, you know, experiences of having to maybe interact in those same ways with maybe players from from the younger age group, maybe working in the academies, maybe more predominantly probably the the professional development phase players? Um, yeah, it, it's, oh. it's it's very different in the academy. So um, academy player care and first team player care are the same name of a department, but actually, you know, it's interesting. Like I, I teach my course with two um, head of player care academies and you know learning from them because i've never worked in the academy to learn from them it is a very different um a very different kettle of fish but it still has similar principles but i think the way i look at the differences and i think you know sue and miguel would agree in my my, my tutors is that first team player care is 80 percent support 20 percent education and academy is probably the inverse of that is, is 80 percent education 20 percent support so it, you know it's not the idea that a 16 year old player can you know go click his fingers in a Lamborghini's delivered that that's not player care in the academy it's very much based on life skills development um teaching them how to do things um supporting them and making sure that they have the right resources they need you know protecting them as well so there's elements of safeguarding there's elements of education academic and and life skills um but it's very much not a first team style which tends to be more like let us know how we can help you or this is how we can help you it's these are the curriculums, this is what we're going to do for you. And if you need help individually, you know, we're happy to in the academy. But the idea is to try and make more well-rounded players who, whether they succeed by going to the first team or they succeed by going to another club, or they succeed in life as going into a, a great education or another career. Um, and I think it's about qualifying success in terms of success is always seen as playing in the first team a thousand games. Well, actually, a, a young player who comes through and gets life skills and comes into it you know and starts a business is brilliant and i think southampton did a really nice job of, of highlighting the success of re release scholars and the success in life they've had there was one lad who started up a recruitment firm a medical recruitment firm in, in portsmouth and that was seen as a bigger success as james will prowse you know two very different obviously stories but actually they were so proud of, of the lad who went and did that that startup that actually and i think that's a great message because you know, we, we've seen the Panorama documentary that, that came out this week, you know, talking about players and, and, and you know, how tough it can be. But actually, to, when, you, when you're putting it on the players and their identity, that they have to be footballers, they have to be successful, it's really hard. And it's really hard when they don't reach that for them to carry on. So what we're trying to do is, is again, not calling it a plan B, but dual careers. So you have two pathways and you're equally happy on either and we're equally happy for you to take either so you have a dual career rather than a plan b and i think even little sort of ways of, of referring to things can make a big difference in terms of of seeing obviously releases is is not ideal for players and, and that's not what they want 
on the whole, but actually seeing it as an opportunity to springboard onto something else better can be, you know, a really good message to give. I definitely, I totally agree with that. Right, so Hugo, you know, one of the things that you touched on there is um, this idea of dual career and having a dual career approach. But ultimately, the priority is obviously to produce footballers at the highest level. But it has been talked about more and more over the more recent years, certainly from my experience, is that a lot of clubs are really trying to put at the forefront of rather than prioritising a footballer, a good person, someone who can be a, 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 a uh, an upstanding citizen of the community, if you like. Yeah. But where is the balance? Now, obviously, we want people to be, and obviously every club is different, but at what point does there start to be a conflict from, I guess, from a player care perspective of right, how much of this we're doing to support the individual mm-hmm. and how much we're prioritising the club's needs in producing a footballer, if you like? I don't think they're mutually exclusive, to be honest. I think you can have good footballers who are good people. I think from from my experience, to be honest, like the top footballers always have a bit of an edge. Um, I, I think a genuinely lovely footballer, I don't want to say will never make it to the top, but you need a bit of a bit of grit, a bit of nastiness, a bit of a bit of bite to you to be a top footballer. And I think you know, you look at a lot of top people in, in industry, in business, in sport, whatever they aren't necessarily considered nice. And I think, you know, whether, whether you're talking about young player care professionals, you're talking about long, young footballers, I think you need to be respectful. You need to be, you know, engaging, listening to what you're, you're being advised to do, but also you need to be able to stand on your own two feet and you need to be able to make decisions for yourself and you need to be able to, you know, know when to say no and, and, and also sort of play the game a little bit. So I think, there's a balance between creating like a, a well-rounded, lovely person and creating a footballer. But I think you can you can be a good person and still not be, you know, uh, I don't want to say wet because that, that seems really unfair. But you know what I mean? Like I've some of the loveliest footballers I've worked with have not been the best footballers. Like they've not been the best. And the, some of the best ones I've worked with have been really, really tough to deal with. But they were they're on your side and they're on your team you're like okay i'll put up with him because he's really good the problem is when they're neither if they're not good and they're a pain in the ass then then the, then that person's got a problem but that's that's quite rare and i think you know it's it's definitely about creating well-rounded humans and allowing them to focus but i think this this idea again that people need to focus on their football is a bizarre one like most people in life have hobbies and footballers are not working 40, 50 hour weeks, they're working three, four hours a day on the whole, you know, in the academy, they work more, but it's, it's really important, I think, for them to have interests outside of football, interests that they can enjoy, something that can, they can switch off. And I know, you know, this kind of, for the fan adage of, of, you know, you lose five nil away and they, well, they should be, they shouldn't, shouldn't be given any days off. They should be training. Well, I know that if I've had a bad day at work, the last thing I want to do is do more work. I want to switch off, maybe have a glass of wine, maybe watch some TV, go for, you know, do whatever. I don't want to go and just do more, more work because actually you need a break to refresh, you know? And, and I think, again, there's this kind of human side of football that is often forgotten. And I think, the more and more these fixtures are pushed, you know, there's more and more fixtures, more and more competitions. 
the more burnout you're going to see of players, I think you'll see players who who retire earlier. I think you'll see players who end up skipping various competitions or, or, or whatever, because it just gets too much. And certainly, even though I wasn't playing, I went to every game home and away for eight years and I was completely burnt out at the end of it. I did 400 and something games. I don't watch football anymore. I don't, I don't enjoy the game. You know, and I used to love it. And now I, you know, I'll probably watch 20 minutes of football every week. You know, I would say is how much I watch if, if it's one of my teams are on and that I've worked on and, and it's on TV and I'm not doing anything, I'll stick it on for a bit, but I don't, you know, I'm not really that bothered. And I think you'll also see more and more players who don't like football in the sense that we would put it on the bus you know, we don't, you know, our bus is a really nice bus. Obviously, when you travel to games, it's got TVs there and everything. We'd always have the game on. I would say maybe less than a third would watch the actual match. Most of them would be playing cards, playing PlayStation, talking to each other, reading a book, playing chess, whatever it is. Very, in, obviously, when a goal goes in, everyone looks down, oh, okay, wow. But actually going, wow, this, you know, really want to do this. And I think that's a shame because you've got players, and there are definitely players who still love the game, but there are a lot of players who are like, listen, I do this because it's great money and I'm good at it and I enjoy it, but I'm not desperate to watch every second of every game. And I think that's, that's an interesting sort of point to, to, to notice. And I, I, I can totally relate. I mean, I guess it's, it's almost having an overload, isn't it? I mean, you, with anything, with whether it's obviously in this case is football, for my players, but the way I look at it is, you know, I don't want to do something. That's my, 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 my job. And I do that as a, you know, for argument's sake, a nine to five. I don't want to then go home and talk about or study my nine to five. Yeah. Let me keep that work there and let me do everything else elsewhere. But something that really kind of jumped at me me while you were talking there was as coaches, Mm -hmm. I think we'd all love to have great relationships with our players. Now, I guess in, in a role like yours, would it be fair to say that maybe you spend probably a lot more time with the that individual than maybe the coach does yeah yeah um so i guess in 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 that then do you find that and i know you obviously mentioned there's some people that are going to be difficult to work with and uh, you're going to get that in life do you find that maybe a lot of your work ends up in you forming friendships with these people not really i mean like okay yes yes and no i would say i think at Southampton, if I if I'm being critical of myself, I was young. I was 23 when I started. I got too friendly with people. I think also because I was living in a city, I didn't know anyone, and so I was seeing people from work. So like you know, if you move to a new city for work, you go out with colleagues for 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 a meal or to hang out or for coffee, or whatever. And I did that with staff and players. But I think what I realized is that it made my job difficult in the fact that I'm a club employee and I have to be on the club side and. There's a very, it's a very difficult balance to get where you are respecting the, you're supporting the players, but also you are ultimately a club employee. And I think that one of the hardest times I've had is when a club and the player are fighting and I'm caught in the middle of it um, because the players, like, I thought you were my mate and I'm like, well, I am, but I'm, I'm you know, I work for the club. I'm going to lose my job if I don't do this properly. So and when I joined West Ham, I made it very clear to people that, I was there to be a professional. I was warm, I was empathetic and I was helpful, but I was not friends with anyone until they left the club. And if they want either what they all, or obviously I have as well now, but was very clever. I never went for a single drink with any person from the club. I never went for dinner. I think I went, yeah, I think the only time I met one assistant kit man once on my first week and that was it. Like in literally in three and a half years, I took my team out, but that was it. 
and I think that made you stronger because you have a work life and you have a personal life and they're, and they're disconnected. And I was never afraid to be, I, I was never afraid to advocate for players' rights or, or for a, a, an issue that I thought with the player. And especially with, with David Moyes, he really bought into what I was doing. And so I had a great relationship with him where I could say, I, you know, this is coming up. This is why he, you know, is maybe the anniversary of his father's death. This is, you know, a tough week for him. Just any blood, great, you know, thanks for letting me know what, or even if it's his birthday, make sure you say, you know, happy birthday. Um, but to have that, be able to have feedback to the manager like that was, was really important. But, um, you know, it's really important not to become friends and not to cross that line. But also like sometimes you do say to the player, like, listen, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you this. I shouldn't tell you this, but you know, this is what I'm going to tell to try and build that relationship. And I, you've got to have that balance of what you know is important and not important. And, 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 and run that gauntlet a little bit but you know I, I left with very good relationships with with everybody or nearly everybody and that's not by becoming over, overly friendly and I think managers sometimes need that distance as well to be able to make hard decisions because you know especially Premier League managers have such hard decisions to make that if he's overly friendly or overly close then is he making the impartial decision or is he making one that he feels bad about or whatever so I, I think it's a really difficult balance to find I think it's a great point um it just it, it makes me think back to a time when I was when I was working with um a senior team a few years back and there was a few social events maybe it might have been someone's birthday or something and they actually yeah. asked me if I if I was going to come and I was straight to the point nah I'm not going to be there <laughs> I, I'm not going to be there but actually one of my assistants would go um yeah. And I had a great relationship with the players, but I just felt if I step into that realm, yeah. certainly while I'm still, I guess, managing them at that time, yeah. um, it can blur lines. Yeah. Um, so there was a level of respect there. We had, we, I would say that we had a good, strong relationship, but I wouldn't class it as a friendship. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there was open communication. We had you know, all, basically all the qualities that a friendship may have without mm -hmm. it being labelled as one. And I think that's also um, an important piece in that because I would assume that in your process of developing these relationships and building these relationships with the people that you're working with mm -hmm. and that you're supporting, a lot of that stuff is likely, you know, much, very much resemble that of a friend, mm -hmm. but without having the label attached to it. How, how, you know, how important do you think is that? that label's not attached to it, but maybe the behaviours are somewhat the same, if you like. Yeah, I think it was really weird because when I left Southampton, I didn't have a long notice period, a month's notice period, and they didn't replace me for like nine months. So it was, it was because they were, I don't know exactly the reasons, but I think they were worried about relegation and getting new staff and all this kind of stuff in. So I'd been at West Ham for maybe a month and I got a message from one of the players saying my tenancy agreement's coming to an end. I haven't got a place to live. You know, I'm done next week. Can you come down and help me find a house? And I'm like, no, I, I work for a rival club. Like, I can't do that. That's, you know, you need to speak to the club. And they're like, I'll pay you. And I was like, no, it's not about the money. It's like, this is a conflict of interest. I'm working at a rival club and... You know, I'm sorry that Southampton haven't, you know, haven't replaced me, but that's not my point. And he was like, I thought we were mates. And you're like, 
but you do know I was paid to be there. You know, like you, you, you do realize that I, this was my job. And like, yes, I care about you and I care about your family. And I knew a lot about them. I would go to birthday parties and I still speak to some of them and their wives and all this. And, and like, it's great to follow their journeys. But like, I was like, but it, it's my job. And so, you know, you're trying to say, well, yeah, I'm here as a friend, but I'm a, I don't want to say a paid friend because that sounds terrible, but like, like I do genuinely care. I genuinely do care, but it's also my job. And so there are times when I will not be able to give you everything because I've got other priorities, but also for them to know that in a real emergency, I would always be there for them as, as both a professional in my job and then, you know, as a friend later on. So yeah, it, it's really tough, but I think to be, that's where those blurred lines and that crossed thing that you, you talked about, and that's where it kind of came back to bite me a little bit, where people thought that I was just, you know, how could I leave them? How could I do that? And I'm like, well, this is a much better opportunity for me. I was a head of department, you know, I was living in London. I was managing a team of people. I had to do it. And, I, and I'm glad I did. But it was that kind of like personal heartbreak where you're like, what? I thought we were friends. But, you know, I think you know, it's on the other side as well, it can be difficult. And I remember the first player that moved away that I got really close to him and his family was, was Morgan Schneiderlin. And I'd see Morgan every day, I'd help him with all this different stuff, you know, him being French, but he was quite established in the team. And we would talk every, every day, you know, multiple times every day. And then he went to Man United and suddenly like talked very little, like not, not, not like because we didn't, I did anything, but like, it was just, he didn't need me anymore and I didn't need, there's nothing really to say to him. And, you know, by the time he was at Everton, like, you know, we'd say hello in, on the match days and stuff, but, but really. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and yeah, you know, that there was individual players that I'd worked with who, you know, on the other side had got such a close relationship when I was at Southampton and like Morgan Schneider was the first one I remember really like, I would see him every day and, 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 you know, work with him very, very closely and, you know, considered him a friend, I guess. But then once he left Man United, there was no need for either of us to really talk to each other anymore on a regular basis and so we kind of drifted apart but actually it was like oh like you know it's almost like a breakup or something like that where you're like you know you're used to speaking to someone every day and then being around that you know you, i go help them with the shopping i'm with other bits and i got to know his partner and all this kind of stuff and 
then suddenly it was like, oh, I saw him like twice a year at games, home and away. And then it, again, when it went to when he went to Everton, even less. And now, like, I don't think I've spoken to him in a number of years. And it's not because either of us are not interested. It's just that's the way football is. And I think football's such a transient industry. I, I worked out, I worked with 140 players in my career. How many am I actually in touch with still? Maybe like 20, I would say. So 120 people that I've been very involved in their lives who I have had no contact with for years and that's just football I mean but I think it's also like business you know if you work in a work environment how many people in the office do you actually keep in touch with five or six you know probably so I, I think in in terms of football it's it's not that different but you go from being so involved in someone's life to completely not and, and that I think is hard for for both sides really. No I definitely I can appreciate that as you're going through it I think so did you did you feel like you maybe there were some withdrawal symptoms at some point where you wanted to reach out to these people in, in some ways? I don't think I could say I'm addicted to Morgan yeah. Island. <laughs> I, but, no, I don't think that. No, I, I think you know I, I like you know the good thing about social media is you can keep in touch, you can keep kind yeah. of tabs on people, and you know like I, I, it's cool for me to see like you know when I when I what was there for the birth of a baby, but you know like helped a player get his house ready for for a baby being brought home, and then you see them now and they're seven, eight years old, kicking the ball around the pitch with their dad, you know, after a game. That's really cool because you're just like, well, you know, that was it's a really nice to see how that family's kind of grown and, and done yeah. that. So, you know, and, and there was obviously certain players who have gone on to real footballing successes as well. But again, to the earlier point of that, of that kind of celebrating all sorts of success, there were some guys who I worked with. I was an intern in the under-18s at Southampton before I went there full-time. And um, some of them are just killing it. Like, you know, one's in America, just done his master's. Um, you know, working out there, brilliant. You know that that and that's that's so, that's so cool to keep in touch with him and, and just see how he's doing. So, yeah, I think you know you know there there are obviously going to be people at work that you like more than others, and there are some footballers that I enjoy staying in touch with. But the majority, it's you know, I think anyone who's worked in football knows this kind of football conversation at a game where it's oh, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, good to see you. How's the family? Yeah, family's good. Oh, I see you next year. Yeah, I see you next year. And that's literally what you end up doing with eighty five. So it's, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have friends outside of football. And, and so I, you know, I don't feel the need to sort of be best mates with a lot of players, but, you know, ultimately doing the job you do, you often fall into that. Mm. No, I totally appreciate that. Uh, some great, great insights there, you know, but I'm also conscious of time. So I want, to, I want to kind of maybe get some real nitty gritty for here for the, for the, for the listeners and the viewers. How does one get into player care? Mm-hmm. And what would you say for maybe those people who are looking to adopt a, a player care approach, if you like, in their environments where maybe it might not be a first team at a Premier League club, it might even be a grassroots club. What are some of the things that maybe tangible things that they could maybe take away from what a player care department would do in that sort of environment and maybe apply in their own environments? What would you say are... I think you've talked in brief about some of the benefits of having a player care department and what that offers, but maybe what that would look like in maybe potentially a grassroots setting or in a college or, you know, even in an academy setting, if you like. Yeah, I'm going to answer your second question first, but I think it's player care is not just about spending money. And actually the best bits of player care is the things you do for free or for very little money. So, you know, one thing I always recommend to organisations is, do like a photo sheet of players, like a, of everyone who works around the club. If you're getting a new player, whether it's into your school or into your men's team or whatever, or women's team, it's here's a picture of everyone's names and faces and we'll give that to you before you start. And you can carry that around on your phone or on your on a piece of paper. And so 
when you're speaking to someone, you go, oh, okay, look at that. Okay, that's that's Steve. Okay, cool. Oh, I know Steve now. Because it's, it's nothing worse than starting a new environment and someone talks to you and you're like, oh, I can't remember his name or or so you need to introduce yourself someone, to someone you're like, I don't know his name either. You know, and so that's something that can be done in an hour. You know, take a picture of each person, put, a, put their name on a sheet and then maybe their role as well. But done, you know, and that's something that I would say to, to any club and that makes such a massive, massive difference. Um, but it's even just just asking how people are, making sure that everything's clearly organised and, you know, OK, you know, where's training? OK, well, is it is there a weird way to get into it? I went to watch my friends play and they said, here's the address of the pitch. And I was like, great. The game kicked off at 10 a.m. or whatever. I got there at 9.45 and I couldn't find my way into the pitch. It was a pitch in the middle of, of, a, of, a, of the South London, but for some reason you had to walk all the way around and then come in this back gate and all this. And I spent 45 minutes trying to get, and I was like, this is mad. I'm, I count myself as quite a switched on person, but I could not find my way in. Now, had they said, enter on this street and come through the gate there, it would have saved me 45 minutes of stress. Now imagine I was making my debut for that team. Yeah. And I'm then 45 minutes late because someone hasn't put in, one through the roof <laughs> yeah and that's the kind of thing where i was just going to watch so it doesn't matter that i was late but like i was annoyed because i was like this is a waste of my time and i was about to like leave and then i worked out but actually like imagine that's your player or that's that's you you know you're the, the partner of the player you know they've come mm. to watch mm. their, their partner for the first time and they can't yeah. be in the off you know it's little things like that where just put yourself in the other person's shoes of how they're feeling yeah now, in terms Getting into the industry, I think. Can I, can I just hold you there for a second before you move yeah. on to that? Just on, on that note, though, I think that it's a word that you've used consistently through this conversation is that word organized and being organized. Maybe, maybe before we move on to that next question, yeah. then maybe just share a little bit more insight in terms of what that actually means. Because initially it started off by being organized when you was out in the States and you're the way you was organizing the team. But what, what does that actually look like? Because people think organized is just always either or it's I think, either on the pitch or not necessarily just off the pitch but uh, the, the 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 vibe i get from what you're saying and the way you've spoken about it is like across the board you're making mm. sure that basically all the t's were crossed and all the i's were dotted yeah. and there was nothing left to interpretation it was just like no this is black and white here everyone has a clear understanding of what's going on what the processes are how things are done where to go for this where to go for that well, maybe just share, share a bit of insight on that yeah, I mean, I think I slightly deviate from what you've said in terms of, for me, good organization is the appropriate release of information to the right people at the right time in a way they can understand it. So there's no point having something organized three months in advance and you tell everyone, right, in three months, you've got to come in this gate at this time and then never speak to them again. And they're like, well, it's organized. I told you three months ago. Yeah, but that's not how the world works. So, and, and for, for me, especially when I was, you know, basically running the organization of, of West Ham's first team is there are so many need, different people who need to know different timings different schedules at different times so the groundsmen and the uh, security guys need to know what time they need to get the pitch ready and, and open the gates the caterers need to know what time that's where the case of the chef he would kill me if i said caterer the chef would need to know when to get the food ready for you know any dietary requirements all about that you know the kit man needs to know when he needs to put the count who's going to be training is it young players is it first players is it injured player you know who's going to be there and so and the players need to know what time they need to show up, what time the gym will be open, what time pre-activation is, what time all this. And so the idea is that you put it, everything in a format that gives the right people the right information at the right time in a way they can understand it. And a lot of what I think player care is, is 
getting lots of information and digesting it into ways that people can understand. So, for example, like during COVID, um, the prime minister's uh, and the government's advice was, was I was say convoluted, but it was very, very wordy. There was lots of information that as players, they didn't need to know, but there was bits that were changing daily. So we would do like three bullet points every couple of days. This is the latest rules, whatever. And so it wasn't like, here's a link to the government website, read it yourself, because I knew they wouldn't do it. So it's basically, do not go outside. You can't go to restaurants, whatever, until 20th of May, whenever it was. And obviously it would change a lot. So then they were getting frustrated as well. But again, you, uh, we had this issue before where, where you know, stuff would be organized months in advance. And if you don't remind them, you know, a month away, two weeks away, a week away, three days away, one day away, they'll just forget and they won't show up because they're not used to dealing with calendars and spreadsheets and all this kind of stuff. But that for me is good organization. It's not about having every possible scenario thought about. It's being able to adapt and, and solve problems. Absolutely. Crisis management, problem solving. But making sure everyone knows what they need to be doing at the right time and not overloading the information. So, yeah, I think that's what I would say organization is. Awesome. Awesome. Now you, you, you're about to go into t- letting everyone know, I guess, how they could potentially get into the player care industry. Yeah. I think the first thing you want to do is you, you've got to be empathetic towards people and you've got to care about people. And, um, you know, obviously <laughs> kind of biased. I, I run courses in player care and, and it's, my company, the Player Care Group, we we run these online courses, and it's it's not necessarily for people who want to get into player care. It is, and it has been, and we've got a number of people working at clubs now. But it's for people who want to learn more about player care. So we get a lot of business owners, we've had coaches, we've had estate agents, we've had you know young aspiring professionals as well, teachers who want to learn more about player care, either for their own knowledge to input into their own industry or to, to try and find a job. So that's that's obviously a great way to do it. However, the course is new and, you know, we've had 85 people through six sold out cohorts. Great. But majority of people working in first team roles in the Premier League, well, 19 of them have not done the course and one of them has. So for for me, it's about volunteering at your, your local level. It's about trying to find something where you can add a difference and, just because you haven't got experience in it doesn't mean you can't do it. Like if I look at the backgrounds of player care professionals, Premier League, you've got policemen, ex-military, you've got teachers, you've got ex-players, you've got linguists, you've got all these different people from different backgrounds. So use your individual life story and life experiences to show how you can be a problem solver. You can be someone who can, who can find solutions to problems, who can be empathetic and warm and really support these guys. And you know, look out for opportunities because they're, they're hugely competitive. Um, but I'm always happy to talk to young people who are looking, or not even young people, the average age of our course is like 40. Uh, anyone who is interested in doing player care, I'm happy to sort of on LinkedIn to reach out and, and try and help if I can. Amazing. And just just on, on that then, as we look to wrap up, are you on social media as well? Is it, and how, how would they get access to your courses exactly? Where could they go to get access to your courses yeah, um, so is it, is it an open entry thing? Yeah, so it, at the moment it's first come, first served. Um, so we've got um, the, the next cohort starts in November, but I think it'll be sold out by the time this uh, this goes out. Uh, we've got more in, in February as well, but playercaregroup.co.uk, um, at playercaregroup, Instagram, Twitter, 
LinkedIn and I'm at Hugo Schechter on, on the same platform. So um, yeah, plenty of ways to like you Google player care, you'll find me. I'm uh, I'm pretty high up on Google for player care. So yeah, you shouldn't be a problem to get hold of me um, and happy to talk to you. I'll show you more about the course and, and uh, all, all about what you're trying to do and, and, and try and help. Amazing. Hugo, look, it's been very insightful. I'm sure we could talk for hours about all the stories you've got and um, uh, your connection with Morgan Schneider. Then. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that are looking to maybe potentially look into your course and maybe have some questions for you. So um, hopefully they'll all be getting in touch. Um, they've probably let me know if they've got any thoughts on the, on the episode as well. But Hugo, yep. thank you again for your time today. Um, really appreciate it. Um, thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you reaching out. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Amazing. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.